0: There's been a lot of discussion over the years about whether Pluto should be categorized as a planet or a dwarf planet. But all of that talk misses the fact that Pluto is something unique in our solar system, a binary planet, and someday it will be a landmark tourist trap. Today we are talking about colonizing Pluto, and also other icy dwarf planets and various Kuiper Belt and trans-Neptunian bodies. Throughout this video, I'm going to refer to Pluto as a planet, so I want to say up front that I'm not defying the International Astronomical Union or trying to restart an old argument. Remember, a dwarf planet or minor planet is still a planet, just as our sun is called a dwarf star but is inarguably still a star. Category names in astronomy have always been a little muddled, because astronomers have almost always had to invent categories without knowing all the things they'd eventually have to categorize. Pluto's not the first planet to get reclassified. As we discussed in Colonizing Ceres and the Asteroid Belt, in the first decade of the 19th century, long before we found Pluto, we found Ceres, Vesta, Pallas, and Juno, and dubbed them planets because they orbited the Sun. As we were able to see smaller objects, We noticed far more of them and in an area we called the Asteroid Belt, a somewhat bad name itself since asteroid means starlike, which they are not, and it's not really a belt but several of them. So while we'd like a neat taxonomy in which objects fall into neatly defined categories, nature keeps testing, and wrecking, our category definitions. The solar system has turned out to be chock full of moons much larger than some planets moons orbiting other moons, and non-spherical objects larger than some spherical objects. Meanwhile, the Sun was dubbed a dwarf star because it's smaller and dimmer than the other stars we could see at the time, but then telescopes improved and it turned out that the vast majority of stars in the Universe are actually much smaller than our so-called yellow dwarf. Whoops. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that as observational technology improved, we had to update our category definitions, and as a result some objects got bumped from one category into another. Pluto has since joined other icy dwarfs like Makemake, Hoami, and Eris, and is now known to be in a second and indeed larger belt full of icy bodies. But whether you compare Pluto to the planets or to other known minor planets, Pluto is quite an oddball that probably warrants its own category and there are certain unique sights that future tourists will only be able to enjoy from Pluto. The most unique aspect of Pluto is its moon, Charon. Now Earth just has one moon, and it's quite large, indeed it's bigger than Pluto, and also quite close, coincidentally about the same size in the sky as our Sun is, permitting total solar eclipses, a phenomenon unique to Earth among the rocky inner planets. Mercury and Venus don't have moons, and most two moons are pitiful little things. Eclipses do occur on the outer planets though, as the Sun is much smaller in the sky out there and they have some rather large moons, though you couldn't watch it from their surfaces because they're gas giants so there's no place to stand. Moreover, their moons generally look smaller than our moon too. Only Tidracht Io, the closest of Jupiter's big Galilean moons, would actually look as big in Jupiter's sky as our moon does on Earth. Pluto, viewed from Charon, would be even bigger of course. Pluto currently has five known moons, and its largest, Charon, is an eighth the mass of Pluto and a third the diameter of our moon, but it's twenty times closer to its planet, making it about seven times wider in appearance than our moon is. That makes it the largest looking object in any planet's sky in our solar system, even beating out the Sun as seen from Mercury. This unique relationship, paired with relative size as well as mutual tidal locking, may one day see Pluto and Charon classified as a binary planet or a double dwarf planet. So what makes a double planet? Planetary systems orbit around their center of mass or barycenter, in most cases the largest body makes up nearly all of the system's mass, and so the barycenter is inside it. In those cases, we just say that the moon orbits the planet, but Charon is so relatively large that the barycenter is well outside of Pluto, and while many moons are tidally locked to their planet, are we showing it the same face while the planet spins freely, Pluto is unique in also being tidally locked to its moon. Pluto and Charon always show each other the same face, each of them rotating and orbiting around the bear center in just under a week's time. Each of them is a constant, unmoving feature always at the exact same place in each other's sky. There's currently no precisely defined category binary planet, but any reasonable definition we might create, Pluto certainly meets. The solar system is a huge place filled with millions of tiny rocks and ice balls that really only seem tiny through a telescope, and many hundreds of them are at least as big as the areas most folks thought was the entire world throughout most of humanity's existence. It is a place destined to be home to many quadrillions of people one day, and if the big planets might be thought of as continents, places like Pluto or Ceres, giants among the many objects of the Asteroid Belt and Kuiper Belt, might be thought of as the largest islands in immense archipelagos. With that perspective in mind, let's join the crew of the Fredo Persephone, as she prepares to dock at Port Tenorum astride the river Acheron flowing above Pluto, in the year 2723. Quite a lot of our cargo is actually passengers, some are tourists from the inner solar system, here to see the unique coupling of Pluto and Charon. A sight well worth the long trip, but most of the tourists are more local—if that's the right word to use here—hailing from the icy hinterland habitats of the Kuiper Belt, come to see the River Acheron and the sights and sounds of the big city. Our captain, hailing from the Jovian region and remembering when Pluto was only a small colony, can never help but chuckle at the notion of Pluto as a metropolis, not compared to the thousands of empires around Jupiter or the trillions of people living in the inner asteroid belt, let alone the vast habitat swarms lazily orbiting high above Earth. For 248 years now, Port Tenorum has been a major hub for Kuiper Belt trade. Even back in those early days of the late 25th century, building the station and the elevator connecting it to both bodies was extremely easy. No expensive advanced materials were required, unlike on Earth because Pluto's gravity is a mere 6% of Earth gravity. No geostationary counterweight was necessary either, because that role and spot were already occupied by Charon, a mere 20,000 kilometers away, and best of all, the system's orbital eccentricity is so slight that the first tether barely even needed to be elastic to stay taut. Pluto is a true binary planet something Sharon's denizens are rather firm on, and the reason they insisted the system's government be located at the Barycenter. Back in the early days, Port Tenorum itself was just a cylinder habitat, relocated from Neptune and connected to the Tether. In the quarter of a millennium since then though, Pluto's population has grown, and that thin space elevator has too. Now it's the Acheron, a transplanetary river, a massive highway of tethers lit by the glowing lights of the capsules moving back and forth on it like an old highway at night, dotted with hundreds of smaller hub stations every hundred kilometers or so. The captain of our freighter has always thought the name River a bit of a strange one, merely a nod to the Hades mythology dominating this distant corner of the solar system. His engineer disagrees though and points up to Pluto, where most of the tethers don't meet at the surface. But keep running far down into Tartarus, Pluto's vast capital city, cut as a deep cone far beneath the surface level and slowly spinning around once every few minutes to augment Pluto's own gravity. The engineer says that the name also comes from how much ice and liquid get mined from Pluto to be sent onto other colonies. Pluto's surface is mostly solid nitrogen, and there's always a demand for bulk nitrogen wherever humanity is building habitats especially back in the inner system. But the engineer says soon it might be an actual river too. Folks are suggesting a very long skinny rotating habitat could be set along this pathway between Pluto and Charon, and by using a mix of pumping and various cylindrical segments that aren't quite cylinders, a long corridor of water could be produced that allowed folks to sail right between the two worlds. Indeed much of the population already live on the Acheron River or its two terminus cities. Our captain disembarks the passengers before making the trip down the Acheron to Tartarus to make some trades. Tartarus is the biggest industrial hub of the Kuiper Belt, as while Pluto is mostly ice, it's less ice than any other place out there, having many metals too. While Freeders heading back to the Core Worlds with those ices often return with metal, it's always cheaper to get manufactured goods from Pluto while docked here, and he wants to fill up on those before heading back out on the long circuit run to the various icy city-states of the Kuiper Belt. Tartarus is aptly named, it's essentially a giant pit, differing from a normal cylinder habitat in that it slopes slightly, curving to be wider at the top end by the surface, and narrower near the bottom, with everything slightly canted, to mix Pluto's weak natural gravity with spin gravity for a more comfortable higher net gravity. Even deeper below run more shafts where that low 6% gravity is tolerable for mining work, but not good enough for regular people to live in every day. So when the robots need on-site oversight, in the freezing cold depths, The lower gravity makes the heavily insulated suits feel less cumbersome anyway. Pluto's made mostly of ice, and ice in this context often isn't water ice, but things like ammonia or methane or even air frozen to a solid. It doesn't do to warm it up, and indeed some of the largest computer systems are out here on Pluto, where they can take advantage of the cold for powerful compact computing. While it benefits from being colder than Titan, it lacks the atmosphere that allows for good heat dissipation. But there's a lot of mass to spread the heat around and many lakes deep below, so there are quite a few computing complexes on Pluto, and this includes Elysium, one of the larger data realms favored by post-biological humans looking to be removed from the hectic day-to-day life of the inner system, or the Universe in general. Our captain is heading there next, though not to trade with any folks living in Elysium proper, as such people trade little and mostly only in software. Sometimes one of them wants to travel and has a dislike for being transmitted rather than carried on a physical storage medium, but otherwise they have little interest in freighters like his. Rather, our captain is headed there because plants don't much care about gravity, just needing a little bit for determining direction. And Elysium gives off a lot of heat, so it was economically advantageous to site various farms and hydroponics above it to benefit from slightly cheaper climate control. There's something of a luxury market for certain agricultural products grown there, which the captain has always found peculiar, but the captain has never much cared why some products sell for more or less, just that they do, and Tartarus wasn't a great market this time around. When the freighter departs it will have plenty of manufactured goods, but the ship's quartermaster thinks some luxury foods and drinks will help the bottom line for this circuit. Our quartermaster has never been on Pluto's surface before, and Elysium is a long way from Tartarus, its ethereal citizenry keeps themselves far away and deep down for maximum protection. She notes that it must be strange living along Akron or in those habitats on the outskirts of Tartarus, where Charon always hovers in the same place of the sky. As their crawler speeds its way through the Cthulio Regio toward Elysium in the Elliot Crater, Charon slowly drops toward and under the horizon. Fortunately the Sun is rising and as dim as it is so far from the inner system, it's more than sufficient to see by. Of course it's nowhere near bright enough to grow plants under, and much of Elysium's agriculture is also done deep below the ground under artificial lighting, some is indeed quite deep down amid the underground lakes. Part of Elysium's commercial success in botany comes from the early subterranean explorations of Pluto, hunting for those underground seas and searching for any signs of life. Sadly none was found there, nor yet on any of the early interstellar colonies created, so humanity still finds itself alone in the cosmos, not including various AI, post humans, or uplifted animals it has made in the centuries since it took its first tentative steps off Earth. Elysium scientists figure, though, that since no life was found in Pluto's underground seas, they can certainly make some, and adapted various organisms from Lake Vostok under Antarctica and from the Europan and Triton colonies for Pluto. Our Quartermaster is intrigued and would love to see more, but they barely get a few hours there before the captain tells her to make ready to leave. As at Tartarus, he got the goods but not as many and at as good a price as desired, so the Quartermaster suggests they should head over to Mordor on Charon, and need to head back to Tartarus to cross the Acheron. Time is pressing though, So the captain will not simply walk into Mordor, and rents a ship to fly straight there. Spaceships don't need much thrust to get to and fro in the Pluto system, with an escape velocity of just 1200 meters per second. It's still expensive for bulk freight, hence the Acheron, but passengers from distant parts of Pluto regularly make use of shuttles. This very low escape velocity plus proximity to Charon Means gases often evaporate off Pluto and get poured onto Charon. Indeed, the mortal macula Neo Charon's North Pole, named for the black land of J.R.R. Tolkien's famous saga, is believed to be formed by methane gases escaping from Pluto and being poured down onto Charon. Our crew was hopeful that they could sell their moderate stores of tholins and organic macromolecules sourced from the moons closer into the system, Titan, Europa, Rhea, and Triton. Tholins are valuable to the Kuiper Belt settlements because they are a mixture of molecules made up from carbon dioxide, methane, ethane, nitrogen, and water. They contain pretty much the ideal mix of elements for farming when refined down into their constituent molecules and used to create atmosphere, water, and fertilizers for agricultural installations. A few years back, it was a highly prized commodity as the agricultural sector grew exponentially with the population on Pluto. As it turns out though, Mordor's refineries have caught up and are now supplying an abundance of organic macromolecules and tholins from Pluto and Charon's cryovolcanoes that spew these out in large quantities from the higher-pressure depths. These aren't available to most small icy bodies of that region, so instead of selling, they buy and walk out of Mordor with a good supply of those arranged for delivery to the Persephone. Time being less critical now, with the goods to be delivered, they take the slower route back along the Akron. And the captain finds himself wondering about what his engineer had said about creating a long habitat corridor between Pluto and Charon. He doesn't think there's nearly enough people here yet to warrant such a mega-engineering project. Pluto, and all its moons and habitats, have only a hundred million residents. The entire Kuiper Belt is only home to a few billion souls, a pittance against the trillions of the inner system, but already far more than the entire outer solar system held when he was a kid and traveled along with his parents to witness the initial colonization of Neptune some centuries ago. He had a chance to meet the Governor of Neptune back then, who regaled him with various plans for the Kuiper Belt which sparked his own interest in the region once he grew up. The Governor's guesses proved largely true, the Kuiper Belt is an immense place of scattered icy rocks, and countless small groups claimed this or that one and burrowed in deep, living in cylinder habitats embedded inside the protective ice. Large freighters like the Persephone slowly cycle around these, trading goods for those manufactured locally and most have their own specialty products. While some are more insular, and mostly import fusion fuel and export citizens who have decided they like less remote and secluded life. Indeed many of these have ended up on his crew at some point. All the big hubs of the Kuiper Belt, be it Pluto or Eris or one of the other ice dwarfs or even Neptune itself, move around the belt as the years go by, and everybody orbits the sun at a different period and angle, so the Persephone never makes the same trip twice on its many years long circuits. But the hub worlds are always nice stopovers, not just for trade goods and R and all, but for the bigger mirrors and pushing lasers they have. Ships can make their way out from the sun on the immense stelazer platforms inward of Mercury, and of course can fall back on fusion drives. But the more massive outer planets usually have mirror rays to bounce light beams back inward to let ships most easily move back to the core wards, and Pluto's Hydra Array is the biggest of all. Also, due to Pluto's orbit being cocked well off the ecliptic, it also allows decent pushes north and south of the ecliptic too. Those mirrors are very large but thin and light, and they need a good amount of mass and gravity to avoid being pushed right out of the solar system, so the various dwarf planets like Pluto are ideal anchor points. The vaunted Hydra Express can carry fast passenger ships from the inner system out to Pluto in just a few weeks, riding the light out to the darker outer regions, and remains the fastest way to most settled places in the Kuiper Belt from the inner system. Bo cargo though still takes years to travel, and even fairly speedy freighters like the Persephone will often spend weeks traveling just between the nearest stops on its circuit, saving fuel to coast along at more modest speeds. Out here, even the nearest decent-sized minor planets are whole astronomical units apart, and so far very few are settled, though it's growing quite quickly and reminds our captain of tales of the asteroid belt's growth back in its pioneering days. Their first stop will be a secure facility doing black hole research, hoping to make artificial ones, And as a scientific outpost, it's only just starting to produce its own food and goods. Tinkering with black holes has to be done far from civilization, so the researchers and staff are here for work, not to make a new home. Luckily for the Persephone, there's a small but burgeoning secondary supply economy springing up there, and while marginal, it's still cheaper to grow food locally than bring it in. They get to offload their tholin supplies from Pluto at a good profit. Most small settlements melt their way inside an icy rock, build a cylinder habitat, and warm and light it with fusion power, but his engineer comes back from shore leave at the research facility regaling the captain about how one day they might replace spin gravity by inserting micro-black holes in the centers of such snowballs instead and power themselves with those black holes rather than fusion. The captain is tempted to scoff, but he's seen many changes in his life, and remembers when people scoffed at the notion any major settlement would even occur this far from the sun's warming light, and wondered why anyone would ever settle the non-planet of Pluto. When the crew leave the research station, they face months or years to the next stop at a linked radio telescope installation that avoids the radio interference of the noisy inner system by being so far out, and it's part of a much larger distributed array that dwarfs the inner system telescope arrays, allowing humans to peer at the Universe in even greater detail. We'll leave the Persephone for now, which will eventually turn around and head in system again out here, drifting among deep space, where a mountain-sized ball of ice is like an oasis, and now with me home to man-made oasises hidden in their cores, Pluto doesn't seem like much of a dwarf. We were talking about interplanetary trade today, and that's a topic we've looked at in more detail before, and I mentioned how the crew of the Persephone would never be traveling the same trade circuit twice. Interplanetary trade is often counterintuitive about destinations because there's no fixed map and everything is moving relative to each other. Even way out in the Kuiper Belt, where things orbit much slower, taking centuries, not years, to orbit the Sun, you're rarely heading to the next closest destination, but rather one based on travel times and velocity vectors, and of course, demand. There are no fixed maps in a solar system and you never travel in a straight line aimed at your destination. If you want to understand this better, try out Brilliant's Bus Tomorrow's Quiz, which explains the Hohmann Transfer, a way of moving between two orbiting bodies with the least fuel. Gravitational physics and orbits are the linchpin of interplanetary trade and colonization, especially for bulk cargo for terraforming. And so they will dominate the factors that set out how a future solar empire will develop. Far future stuff to be sure, but math and science already strongly dominate so many variables in day-to-day life, and a better understanding of it makes it easier to not only visualize the future, but to navigate the present too. Plus, it's a lot of fun. Brilliant uses a mix of interactive visualizations And illustrated and animated problems to help you learn about topics like these in a fun and intuitive way. And they also have daily challenges that help you learn a little and stimulate your mind every day, which is the best way to learn. And if one of the challenges grabs your curiosity, there is a full interactive course that explores the same topic in depth. Want to learn something new on your commute, while traveling, or just without a constant stream of phone notifications? Brilliant's new offline courses will allow you to do just that. Download any of their dozens of interactive courses through the mobile app, and you'll be able to solve fascinating problems in math, science, and computer science, no matter where you are or how spotty your internet connection. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, go to brilliant.org slash isaacarthur and sign up for free, and also, the first 200 people that go to that link we'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription, so you can solve all the daily challenges in the archives and access dozens of problem solving courses. So we've got some good episodes coming up for the rest of June. Next week we'll be continuing our look at black holes and the sorts of civilizations that would develop around their use, by talking about their military applications for offense and defense in weaponizing black holes. Later in the month, we'll also be looking at how energy beaming technology might be applied to let us push spaceships off Earth not just in deep space, and we'll also take a fun look at various superpowers like telepathy, telekinesis, super strength, flying, and more, and see what technological options might allow these, which surprisingly would not include absorbing a lot of radiation as so often seen in comic books. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.